This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Let me start by introducing Dr. Tosinski, who will be our first presenter. Uh, Dr. Tosinski is a very distinguished physician scientist. I've been very fortunate to have him as a colleague over the years and his research has focused on developing better therapies for spinal cord injury, his topic today, but also on developing therapies for Alzheimer's disease, also a terrible disorder, uh, which uh, Dr. Tosinski has been developing very novel uh, gene therapy approaches for that are now in clinical trials. Dr. Tosinski's background is that he attended the University of Minnesota, where he received his bachelor's and MD degrees. He had residency training in neurology at Cornell University Medical Center and the New York Hospital. And then in a rather unusual departure, he came to UC San Diego, joined our neuroscience graduate program and uh, obtained a PhD in neuroscience. So he is one of our, our own graduates. We're very proud of him. Mark's been a faculty member at UC San Diego since 1991. He's currently director of the Center for Neural Repair, and he's also founding director of the UCSD Translational Neuroscience Institute. He's been a very active scientist and author with over 300 publications and three books. And as I mentioned, his uh, primary research goal is to develop effective therapies for untreatable uh, neurologic disorders. He's received 15 awards and his research is supported by the NIH, the VA, and several foundations. So with no further ado, let me turn the podium as it uh, is uh, over to uh, Dr. Tuszynski. Mark, you're on. Thank you, Larry. It's a pleasure to be here and have this opportunity to tell everybody about our work. I've been at UCSD for about 30 years now, and I'm the director of the Translation Neuroscience Institute. Today, we'll talk about neural stem cells for spinal cord injury. And um, this work comes out of the Center for Neural Repair at UCSD. Um, and let me just say, this is a group of 40 scientists and support personnel uh, aiming to develop novel therapies for diseases of the nervous system that are currently untreatable and tragically rob many people of useful years and function. And we focus on spinal cord injury, peripheral nerve injury, and Alzheimer's disease. And today we'll talk about spinal cord injury and whenever I talk on this subject, I really have to highlight Dr. Paul Liu here, who himself is paraplegic. Paul really encouraged us strongly to get into stem cell research a um, little less than 10 years ago. And were it not for his encouragement and his outstanding research that really forms the basis of about everything that I'll show you with regard to spinal cord injury, we wouldn't be where we are. Um, so let's begin by talking about what spinal cord injury is and uh, how often it occurs. So 15 to 20,000 Americans sustain a new spinal cord injury each year. And that leaves us, since survival lasts for several decades after spinal cord injury, a population of 200 to half a million people living in chronic stages of the illness. And this uh, often affects people early in life related to the causes of spinal cord injury resulting in decades of disability for people who are affected. The most common cause in our society is motor vehicle accidents, including motorcycle accidents, um, but also diving uh, injuries, uh, surfing accidents, and falls. 
And again, they, since younger people tend to be more active or perhaps not as cautious drivers, these tend to affect people in earlier years. And tragically, there are no effective therapies for repairing the nervous system. Physical therapy can be very valuable for optimizing the use of spared systems to compensate and in people with incomplete injuries to recover some function, but we really lack effective therapies to go in and rebuild the nervous system. So spinal cord injury occurs at a specific level of the spinal cord and results in a loss of movement, sensation below the level of the injury. People frequently lose bowel and bladder control and there is a loss of sexual function. And the majority of the time, these injuries are complete. So people have none of these residual functions below the injury. Sometimes uh, people may have an incomplete injuries with some partial sparing of some of these functions. And it is in these circumstances in which physical therapy can rebuild a bit of function. Spinal cord injury affects all people from all walks of life, all races, indeed all ages. And uh, injuries are particularly frequent in the military, as you might imagine. So spinal cord injury is often a severe injury, uh, but people live on. And um, many people live for decades. So this is my friend, Bob Yant, who will be speaking later, who, who sustained his spinal cord injury decades ago. He survived, persisted, and, and um really just has had a, a very successful life and now is a successful businessman. Rick Hansen is another example of an individual who was an athlete injured at a young age in Canada. He faced his injury. He wheeled a wheelchair across Canada to raise funds for spinal cord injury and established a spinal cord injury foundation that has contributed tens of millions of dollars for spinal cord injury research. Ken Waldrop, another, another friend of mine from Texas, was also injured decades ago playing high school football. He persevered, he, he formed a foundation, he transitioned from that into a successful businessman and he never gave up, evidenced by the boxing glove right there. And another friend of mine, Mark Penny, just these are examples of people who sustained spinal cord injury and went on to thrive in their lives. Mark was injured decades ago and is now a successful CFO. He's been a CFO of many uh, companies related both to spinal cord injury, but separate from spinal cord injury. So spinal cord injury is not a death sentence, but it is a life sentence. And our hope is to change that and to change that pursuing stem cell technologies. But let's continue for a moment on how this affects people. So among the about one third of patients who have spinal cord injury, about one-third develop a chronic disabling type of pain called allodynia. And if a patient with spinal cord injury develops this chronic pain, this becomes their dominant life issue, as it does for anyone else who has chronic pain. Um, for those patients who don't have pain but sustain a cervical level injury, an injury in the neck, which is the majority of uh, level of injuries in people, the most important priority for people with cervical spinal cord injury is to, is to regain some hand function. For people with injuries lower down at the thoracic and lumbar levels, well, the predominant issues becomes cell control bowel and bladder function. And to them, this is the most important priority for recovery of function. And walking comes next. Uh, infertility is an important issue to some patients with spinal cord injury, as is loss of sensation. Loss of sensation actually probably results in 
one of the most frequent causes of hospitalization for chronically injured people because they develop bed sores and they don't shift the weight off of the bed sore because they don't feel it developing. Um, and then depression, which you might think would be, which you might think would be extremely common among people with spinal cord injury, occurs in about 11 to 37 percent. I think the number is closer to the lower level of this range. It's more common in early stages of spinal cord injury, where, as you can imagine, adjusting to this catastrophic change in one's life seems overwhelming and impossible. Yet people can adapt. They don't necessarily accept the injury. Many do accept it. Many don't accept that they won't have some recovery in the future, but they, they understand that they, this has happened. It's a challenge they never would have chosen, but life continues and they have to continue both for their own good and for the good of the people who care for them. And indeed studies of resilience and happiness after spinal cord injury show that the majority of patients describe themselves as happy with their success in adjustment and resilience related to their personality, their extent of social support, and having a spiritual connection of some sort. So, so that's the background on spinal cord injury, but let's talk a little more about now why the spinal cord doesn't regenerate and then what we might do to encourage it to do so. So this is a diagram of the nervous system and the spinal cord here runs along the back, of course, Signals in the brain to plan movement are sent from the brain using wires of the nervous system called axons that transmit just like wires, electrical signals down from the brain into the spinal cord. Those axons, those wires form connections with cells in the nervous system in the spinal cord. Those connections are called synapses. So an electrical signal is, goes from the brain to a cell in the spinal cord. And that cell in the spinal cord then sends a signal down a nerve into the muscle to generate movement. And again, this is an electrical signal. The analogy to wires is a faithful one. Um, and, and this is a human spinal cord dissected uh, after the time of death. This is an intact person's spinal cord. The brain is up here. And here's this just remarkable bundle of wires again called axons. There are about one million of them packed into this space in the back, and these nerves come off and send their, their wires, their axons down to muscles to generate movement. So again, the axons in the nervous system are just like wires. They transmit signals using electrical properties. They're bundled together into the sheaths of related function as shown here in a wire. And they're insulated just like wires in order to enable the electrical signal to be propagated more faithfully um, and more quickly. So spinal cord injury results when these wires are cut, interrupting information relay from the brain to the muscle and sensory information from our limbs back up to the brain. Again, there are normally about 1 million of these axons in the spinal cord. So the problem in spinal cord injury is that these wires are cut. And that is sometimes accompanied by a loss of the insulation around the wires called myelin. There are also cells in the spinal cord at the level of the injury that are lost, but the vast majority of functional loss that patients suffer is not from the loss of cells here, but from a loss of the wires that pass through the area of injury. And again, the typical mechanism of injury is trauma in which there's an impact on the spinal cord and that causes the spinal cord to fracture and to move forward. And this squeezes the spinal cord, causes hemorrhage as shown here, 
and the loss of function. One tries to decompress this dislocation as early as possible these days. And when one does that, patients are less frequently complete in the nature of their injury. Um, sometimes that helps and sometimes it doesn't. So, so once the patient has been injured and they start to recover from the medical complications, the question becomes, can we do anything to promote regeneration? So why doesn't regeneration naturally happen? So the first reason that there, there are no bridges that are formed in a site of injury that can support growth. This is the spinal cord looking at the side in a human who has sustained a spinal cord injury. This is an MRI scan. So here's the spinal cord above, here's the site of the injury, and here's the spinal cord below. So the spinal cord below remains, but here in the injury site, there's a degeneration of the tissue and the tissue is eventually removed by cells that are inflammatory cells, and, and people are left with a fluid in the injury site. And an injured axon, an injured wire, can no more regrow through water than we can walk on water. It, it needs a solid substrate, not fluid, in order to be able to grow. And that kind of bridge in the injury site just doesn't form naturally after a spinal cord injury. So that's one problem. A second problem is that there are growth factors made by the nervous system that can stimulate growth. And that happens after a peripheral nerve injury. But in the, in the central nervous system, that doesn't happen. Growth factors are not made in appropriate amounts or, uh, or timeframes to support regrowth. Third, there's an insufficient activation of, of the cell that has been injured to signal it to start growing a new axon. Some signaling to grow does occur but it's not as strong as it was during neural development when we were all you know, uh, embryos and fetuses growing our nervous system. So these are some of the reasons we don't get more growth, but on top of these, on top of the lack of some of these things, there's also active inhibition of new growth in the nervous system. So our, our, our mature nervous systems are the result of an exquisite orchestration of events during fetal development that send signals to cells where they should grow in order to form the mature nervous system. And this is based on a time series of events that are, that are determined by DNA and by the environment. And to maintain that complex structure, there are inhibitors present in the nervous system throughout life to keep abnormal growth from occurring, to cement in this structure. But an, an end result of this inhibition which comes in two types. Some of it is on the white matter, the nervous, the, the insulation of the nervous system, and some is in the glue between cells. And there are inhibitory proteins that actively block new growth to maintain the organization of the intact nervous system. But after injury, they are responsible for inhibiting regeneration. So this is the problem that we're left with after a spinal cord injury. An injury has occurred, fluid forms in the lesion site, and these wires, these axons coming down from the brain are blocked and they just have nothing to grow into. So let's start talking about neural stem cells now. So neural stem cells offer the potential to fill in that fluid in the injury site to replace those lost cells at the site of injury. And, and in theory, what they will do is allow the host axons now to regenerate into that space form a new connection with the cells, the stem cells we put in the injury site, and the stem cells will then send out new connections below the injury to splice the circuit and restore function. And ultimately, one would hope, improve function. So the first time we studied this approach was in 2012 when Dr. Liu 
as the lead author on the study, published our first report looking at this. So what are stem cells and what are neural stem cells? So stem cells um, are the things that generate everything that constitute who we are. On the fateful day or night, as the case may be, when each of us were conceived, we began as a single cell. A egg cell uh, was penetrated by a sperm to generate the first stem cell that constituted who we became. We all originated from a single cell. And that was called an embryonic stem cell. And the characteristic of a stem cell is that it can make every cell of the body, and that it can renew itself continually over, over many, many, many thousands of cycles of the cell division. At some point during uh, embryonic development, some of those embryonic stem cells commit to become neural stem cells. They say, okay, I can no longer make a liver cell or a bone cell. I'm just going to make nervous system cells. And at that stage, they're called neural stem cells. And these neural stem cells can also keep dividing. They can keep filling out the nervous system. They can form the many different types of the mature nervous system, the so-called thinking cells, the neurons of the nervous system, and the support cells called the glia, consisting of a, one cell type called an astrocyte and another cell which forms that insulation around the wires of the nervous system called the oligodendrocyte. So in our stem cell studies, we use these neural stem cells. So we start with an early stage cell and we aim to put it in the injury site to reconstitute a neural environment that can then develop and grow and splice the circuit. So, so these stem cells are the starter cells of the body that can continually divide and replenish themselves and can form any tissue of the body. But the neural stem cells are the starter cells of the brain and the spinal cord. That can also divide many times, not always indefinitely, like a stem cell, and can form any tissue now of the nervous system. So here's what we would do in this hypothetical model. We'd take this empty lesion site, we would implant the stem cells here, which are shown as green. So the wires of the host nervous system are shown in red. And in this hypothetical model, we implant these green neural stem cells. They would ideally survive and fill the injury site then the host axons would now regenerate into this and form electrical connections with these cells called synapses. And if all goes well, then these developing cells that we've put in here that are green would send their connections out, their axons out, and reconnect with the spinal cord below. So now when there's an electrical signal coming from the brain down these axons, it ends here in the graft, it electrically stimulates the graft, and that relays the signal down below the injury. So does that actually work? Astonishingly, it does. So I'm showing you here a spinal cord of a rat and everything that's green here is a neural stem cell that we have implanted in the rat's spinal cord at this level here where I am pointing. So in this case, it's a side view. The head is to the left, the tail is over here to the right. And we have performed a complete cut of the spinal cord at the upper thoracic level. And everything that is green here is actually a human axon coming from a human stem cell we placed here, sending its wires, its connections down through the injured spinal cord in numbers that are absolutely astonishing. Before we started working with stem cells, the greatest number of axons from which we could elicit growth was about 100. And the longest distance over which they would grow was about one millimeter. That is roughly a 20th of an inch. Now, using 
neural stem cells from mice, from rats, or from humans, they all do the same thing. If you put them in this injury site, they grow out up to 300,000 axons, not 100 axons, but 300,000 axons for distances not of one millimeter, but 50 millimeters, several inches. Again, this biology was absolutely astonishing. By the way, it wasn't quite that straightforward to get there. Uh, Paul Liu, Dr. Liu had to work for more than a year to identify the right conditions for these cells to survive the implantation in the injury site. We had to develop a matrix, a gel into which the cells would be placed and retained and distributed in the lesion site. And we had to supplement that with growth factors to enable these cells to survive and fill. But once we did, we could see this absolutely astonishing growth. I'm a neurologist and I never thought in my life one could see growth like this in the injured spinal cord. So how were we? How did we do these experiments? We started with rats and we placed the spinal cord injury. We waited two weeks and then we implanted the neural stem cells into the injury site. And we waited two weeks to make this clinically relevant. You can't, in many cases, perform surgery right away on an acutely injured person. You have to wait for them to medically stabilize. So we thought we would wait that two-week period, which is what we do in humans. And then we let them we let the rats survive for weeks to years, and we assessed their functional outcomes and the results of tissue studies. And by the way, we, we could implant these cells, these human cells, for example, into rats because the rats are a special type of rat that doesn't have an immune system, so it doesn't reject the implant. And so this is what the cells look like in the implantation site after a complete transection of the spinal cord at the upper thoracic level in a rat. And, and all of the um, stem cells have been genetically engineered to make them green. So the cells themselves are green, and all of the uh, connections that they send out are also green. So we can unequivocally see whether the cells survive, what they become, and where they send out their connections. So we found that, again, with those very specialized methods, we could get these cells to survive and fill the injury site, and we saw this astonishing growth out. So... Um, here, here's the growth coming be below the injury site into the host spinal cord below the injury. Here they are traveling just in higher magnification in these linear arrays of axons. This, this white matter, which is inhibitory to the growth of adult axons, actually stimulates the growth of these stem cell-derived axons. So they grow for these long distances. They grow seven spinal cord segments below the injury in a rat. Um, and, and so what I've shown you so far is that these stem cells survive in the injury site, uh, extend very large numbers of axons, new replacement axons, wires into the host spinal cord below the injury. But human spinal cords are much larger than these rats, about 40 times longer. So once we saw these results, we had to say, well, okay, would this still happen if we tried this in humans? Would the graft survive? Can we extend this technology and think about doing something like this in humans. So we decided to move this to a non-human primate model of spinal cord injury. So in uh, adult monkeys, we, we, would injury, we would injure just a part of the spinal cord in such a way as to cause weakness of one hand. But this was an incomplete injury. The monkey retained the ability to use the upper arm and shoulder on that same side. It, can't use the hand very well because it tends to be closed. 
but it can use the arm and shoulder. The left hand is entirely normal and the legs are, are both normal and bowel and bladder function are preserved. So it's a humane model, but it's one in which, in which we can realistically test before thinking of taking this to humans, whether this represents a realistic therapy or not. And when we first started to do this, um, our implants didn't survive, actually. The same methods we used in rats just were not effective in monkeys. The implants died. And so we had to work for some time to develop methods in which we altered the nature of the gel we implanted the cells with. We had to develop an immunosuppression regimen that would enable these grafts from humans to monkeys to survive. And eventually we succeeded. And this is what grafts placed into the injury site two weeks later look like. Again, the implants of these human neural stem cells in monkeys are green. So here they are filling this injury cavity. Here's another view of this. Now the head is to the left and the tail is to the right. And here is a human neural stem cell implant filling a spinal cord injury cavity, a partial cavity in a monkey. And uh, lo and behold, again, hundreds of thousands of axons emerge per side of the spinal cord. They grow for up to 50 millimeters, five centimeters. For, so from the mid cervical level to the mid uh, thoracic level, and they are present in both the gray and the white matter of the spinal cord. And here's a higher magnification view, just showing these linear arrays of new wires coming down the spinal cord to enter the spinal cord that had lost its function. And if we look several segments below the injury at the upper thoracic level, we see these green wires on the side of the spinal cord that was injured. And at higher magnification, we see many, many of these axons coming down. Here's a higher magnification inset showing just one of these axons traveling down the spinal cord. And these axons, these human wires, uh, insert themselves among the gray matter, the neurons of the spinal cord that travel to the muscle. So here they are converging on the cell surface of these spinal motor neurons, as they're called, and they're forming synapses. They're forming electrical connections that can actually generate a response in the host motor neuron. So we can move this technology from rats to humans. So I've shown you that we can implant the stem cells in the lesion site, they can survive, they can grow out new connections uh, and form contacts with the host spinal cord below. But for this to work as a relay, you also need the host axons that have been cut to regenerate into the graft. Do they? In a word, yes. So. Here's the graft now in the injury site. Now I've switched colors on you here. Now the host axons coming from the brain to the spinal cord are what we have labeled green here. And our stem cell implant here is red. And this is where the injury border is. So you go from the spinal cord above the injury, across the dotted line and into the injury cavity that now contains these red human stem cells. And these are the wires, the axons that control movement regenerating into the neural stem cell graft placed in the lesion cavity. Here's another view of that. So now we've switched colors yet again. Sorry for all the colors, but so these are the wires coming down from the brain that control movement in the spinal cord. They are penetrating the neural stem cell graft that is not colored here in the injury site, these are all the connections from the host brain traveling down the spinal cord and extending into the neural stem cell graft in the lesion site. 
And once again, they form electrical connections with the stem cells. So we have the stem cells replacing the wires below. We have the host wires growing in and forming uh, synapses. And all of these form electrical connections. So do they influence functional recovery? So do they influence functional recovery? And the answer is yes. It's not complete recovery, it's partial recovery, but it's good enough that we think this merits coming to human clinical trials. So first of all, in rats that have a complete cut of the spinal cord, this is something called the BBB scale. It's a test to see how well the legs of the animals recover. It's a 21 point scale. And you can see these rats recovered to about seven. So it's about you know, one third of the scale to which they have recovered. This amount of recovery um, reflects the ability of the rats to move, to move each joint of its leg. So with the stem cell graft, they can move its ankle, its knee, and its hip. It can't support its weight, but it can, it can move each joint of the lower legs. Compared to an animal that had no stem cell implant, it barely shows a twitch of movement in its legs. These rats with the stem cell implants are moving the muscles through each joint of the leg. So it's, it's more recovery that had, than had ever been seen before with a treatment for spinal cord injury in the rat after a complete transection. It's not, it's not complete recovery by any means, but it's about one third recovery. And we'll come to whether that's meaningful or not in a moment. Now, if we do a mid cervical spinal cord injury in the neck, and then we see how well the rats can reach for a food pellet and retrieve them, then the amount of recovery compared that to animals that have no uh, treatment at all, it's about a doubling of the recovery. So the rats go from before the injury, they could retrieve 10 of these pellets per session. After the injury, it's about one and a half. And now after the stem cell graft, they can retrieve about four. And when they actually pick it up and you ask how accurate are they, how often do they bring it to the mouth and eat it? Uh, among the animals that uh, show the low recovery, only about 40% of the time do they actually manage to get it to their mouth. But with the stem cell graft, they get it there about 80% of the time. So there's an overall improvement in hand function of about 40%. Um, so uh, what does this mean? Well, if you have a human who has a spinal cord injury and now they get a bit of recovery of hand function, might this enable them to control a handle on a wheelchair and improve their independence? Or if it's somebody who has a higher level injury and they can't breathe on their own, might it allow some breathing control to recover? These are certainly possibilities within the realm of this recovery. So we took this then again to monkeys and we asked, can we see some kind of functional recovery in monkeys? So in monkeys, this is an example of how we look at their functional recovery. These are trays and we put raisins in these trays as a food reward. And the monkey has to use this kind of a pincer motion to try and retrieve the food. It's a dexterous kind of motion and it gets harder and harder as some of these boards get more complex. And we also have a task where we have the monkeys uh, receive a food object, like, a, like in this case, an orange, as you can see. And the left hand is gripping the orange and the monkey can take food out of it. The right hand in the absence of a treatment is curled up. That's the kind of injury I was telling you that these monkeys have. You can see the thumb inside the hand because the hand is closed up and not functional. And then, some monkeys, after the grafting, you can see an improvement of this, where it's now able to extend the fingers and actually grip the orange. 
So we can measure all these things. We can give a number to these things. And overall, the amount of recovery is roughly what we saw in rats. So in monkeys that have this injury and no treatment, they show a little bit of spontaneous recovery, a little bit of movement. But in the monkeys that receive the stem cell therapy, they have about 50 to 70% more recovery on this kind of object manipulation task than monkeys that didn't have any treatment. And again, if this translates into an ability to move the finger so that they can control something or grip a glass and bring it up and give themselves a drink instead of depending on someone else to do that, that could have a major impact on quality of life in somebody with spinal cord injury. So based on this kind of data, we are moving this forward into a planned human clinical trial in the future. So to summarize, neural stem cells build these bridges after spinal cord injury, forming new re neural relays across the injury that partially restore function. So the next steps uh, are what we are pursuing now in this potential translational program. So we have uh, provided an initial proposal for a clinical trial to the Food and Drug Administration. And we are currently in the process of performing long-term dosing and safety testing of these stem cells in both rats and in non-human primates to establish that with the cell lines that we would bring to humans, that the cells actually do something, that the cells can survive when placed in the injury site, that they form these connections. They have a realistic chance of influencing functional outcomes. And we're also in the process of making these cells to specifications required by the Food and Drug Administration to allow human use and testing. There are a number of uh, measures that the FDA expects us to comply with in making these cells. They expect us to show that we can consistently make these cells, that they are what we think they are, and that they do what we think they do. And those are important studies. They're reasonable studies. And that we currently have funding from another, a number of agencies to pursue this work. And funding is a key word here. So funding is crucial. So let me just say that the funding to do the work that I've just shown you has come from several resources. You know, when you're supporting the salaries of 40 people doing these kinds of studies, it's very expensive. And we are fortunate to have the support of several government uh, funding agencies, including the Veterans Administration, the National Institutes of Health, the California Institute of Regenerative Medicine, or CIRM. Thank you to California residents for funding CIRM so that we can do this kind of work. Then spinal cord foundations have also stepped up to the plate, including the Adelson Medical Research Foundation, the Craig H. Nielsen Foundation, Wings for Life, which is a foundation started by Red Bull. They sponsor a lot of athletic events. Athletes get injured, and they are funding spinal cord injury research. Uh, we're also funded by the Spitzer Family Foundation, the Gerbic Family Foundation, and individual donors who step up sometimes and provide uh, donations. What's also critical in programs like this are the people and the outstanding people that it is my privilege every day to wake up and know that I'll have the opportunity to work with. These are bright, dedicated individuals, some of whom have been working with us for decades and some of whom have been here for just a few years, but who are passionate about this work, passionate about improving the human condition. And it's uh, my honor to be able to work with them. In addition, this requires a lot of expertise and a lot of different disciplines to bring a program like this to humans. And so we collaborate with a, leather, a, a number of other spinal cord injury groups at other institutions in California, across the United States, and across the world. 
Uh, and our, our most important colleagues in some of the work I've shown you are Michael Beatty and Jackie Bresnahan at UCSF and uh, our colleague Greg Lockfortine in Switzerland. Um, and with that, um, I am done. I thank you for your attention and I think we'll turn it over to Bob Yant now. So thank you very much for that, Mark. That was really a terrific presentation. Um, so we'll have questions at the end. I see some questions appearing now on the Q&A function. Thank you all for submitting them. Uh, my next job is to uh, introduce you to Mr. Robert Yant, uh, Bob Yant. Uh, he uh, himself is a quadriplegic as a result of a 1981 accident. And uh, Mr. Yant has been incredibly impressive in the dedication uh, that he has uh, brought to the task of raising funds for basic research aimed at developing a cure for spinal cord injury. All of us scientists, such as Mark and myself, who work on different sorts of diseases, our work uh, requires that funds be raised, and we owe a great deal of gratitude to patient advocates uh, such as Mr. Yant. Uh, Mr. Yant was a member of the National Board of Directors for the Christopher and Dana Reeve Foundation from 1982 through 2011. Uh, that uh, foundation has raised a great deal of money for spinal cord research. And Bob himself has raised over $17 million, which I think is really just amazing and impressive. And I think we all owe him a great debt of gratitude. He has been involved with numerous other patient advocacy organizations. He has found time to be a very successful businessman, starting and running uh, several different companies. And uh, finally, his education, I'm happy to say, was received at the University of California, initially at the Santa Barbara branch, and then ultimately uh, at uh, UC, uh, University of California uh, at Berkeley. Thank you very much, Dr. Goldstein. When I was asked to speak today, the organizers asked this question, why is this research important? And I want to answer that question from two different perspectives. The first perspective is as a person with spinal cord injury. And the second way that I want to approach this question is as a layman focusing on the science. So first, uh, as a spinal cord injury person, and I'm going to cover a lot of the territory that Mark covered, but uh, in a different way, perhaps. Next month will be the 40th anniversary of my accident. Obviously, these are anniversaries that are not celebrated. I broke my neck diving into the ocean in Newport Beach. I thought I was diving into six feet of water, but there was a sandbar underneath the water that made the depth really more like six inches. I broke my neck at the fifth cervical level. And with that level of injury, I'm able to move my arms, but I have no use of my hands or any part of my body below my shoulders. There are four sections of the spinal cord, and the higher the injury, the more severe the consequences. At the third cervical level of injury, respiration is lost, and this was the level of Christopher Reeves' injury, and he used a ventilator to breathe. So paralysis following spinal cord injury is bad enough, but as Mark said, the secondary conditions can be more severe and actually life-threatening. 
With the lack of movement and sensation, people with spinal cord injury can develop decubitus ulcers or pressure sores. And the most common area for the pressure sores are what are called the ischial tuberosity bones, which are the sharp bones on the bottom of your rear end that are prominent when you're seated. I've had friends with spinal cord injury who have been bedridden for up to two years trying to heal a pressure sore. Being paralyzed is bad enough, but being bedridden is much worse. Another concern for people with spinal cord injury is urinary tract infections. Without the ability to, of our muscles to squeeze urine out of our bladders, people with SCI have to use some method to drain their bladders. And most often this involves using a catheter. When you insert a catheter into the bladder, bacteria are introduced into the bladder. And after people get bladder infections, the frequent use of the antibiotics to combat these bladder infections can cause some bacteria become, to become resistant to the antibiotics. And I've been in this frightening situation myself also. It was a complication from an antibiotic-resistant bacteria in his bladder that led to Christopher Reeve's death. There have been no international surveys of the number of people with spinal cord injury in the world. And I have some different numbers than Mark. Uh, this is a little bit controversial, but uh, in the United States and Europe, we, I think there's really more like two and a half million people living with spinal cord injury. So it's conceivable that there are six million people in the world living with spinal cord injury. And the annual cost for the medical care of people in the United States is in the billions of dollars. There is really no way to quantify the anguish and the pain and the suffering that people live with as a person with spinal cord injury. So from a person's perspective of someone with spinal cord injury, Mark's research is important because it has the potential to restore, to restore recovery of function to millions of people living with paralysis. So why is this research important from the perspective of a layman focusing on the science? Mark and I first met when he was a postdoctoral research, researcher in Rusty Gage's lab at UC San Diego. Mark and I are veterans in our decades-long quest to develop a cure for spinal cord injury. Throughout his career, Mark has been known as one of the leading researchers in the entire field of spinal cord injury research. Now, as Mark showed following the trauma and the shock to the spinal cord, in the days and the weeks after the injury, secondary cell death causes a cavity to form at the area of injury. And another consequence of the injury that Mark showed is that these long track nerves, which extend from the brain into the spinal cord, are disrupted. And many of these nerves control movement in the body below the injury. So in order to repair the spinal cord, 
to its pre-injury state, it's necessary to regenerate these nerves through the injury. And in order to regenerate those nerves across the cavity, it's necessary to develop some sort of bridge for the nerves to grow upon. Ten years ago, Mark's research focus turned towards stem cells as a way to fill the cavity left by a spinal cord injury. And as you've seen, Mark and his lab have developed this technology so that the stem cells can survive and beautifully fill the cavity. And as Mark showed in the slides just now, where the section spinal cord plants, transplants were made, that it's almost impossible to distinguish between the host and the grafted tissue. Now, Mark's research, as we saw, has shown that not only do the stem cells fill the cavity formed after a spinal cord injury, but these stem cells can encourage the growth of nerves on both sides of the injury to grow into the stem cell graft. And Mark showed some function in this slide right now. And very importantly, Mark has extended these results from rats to primates. Research in primates is important because the primate spinal cord much more closely resembles the human spinal cord. Mark's science has continued to get strong confirmation from his peers as several of his research articles have been published in the Nature family of journals, which is widely recognized as the premier science journals in the world. Before I conclude, I want to make a few observations about the field of spinal cord injury research. There are many experimental treatments in animals that seem to have beneficial effect in causing recovery after acute or new spinal cord injury. But over 99% of the people in the world with spinal cord injuries have chronic or long-term injuries. And today, Mark might disagree, but there's no experimental treatment in animals which causes meaningful functional recovery from chronic or long-term injury. And unfortunately, most of the research in spinal cord injury is focused upon the acute injury and not the chronic injury. And this part, the reason of this is that chronic injury experiments are much more expensive, more difficult, and more time-consuming than acute injury experiments. Over the past decade, a consensus has developed that a treatment for spinal cord injury will most likely be a combination treatment. An example of this is Mark Tuzinski's experiment using a drug called chrondoidinase in addition to neural stem cells. And the, he, Mark had very good results in that combination experiment. And lastly, Mark spoke about funding in spinal cord injury research and almost any discussion about spinal cord injury research can't conclude without mentioning, or in my case, complaining about the dearth of funding for spinal cord injury research. Overall, the field of spinal cord injury research is severely underfunded. Now, as the development of vaccines for COVID-19 demonstrated, a huge infusion of money 
can make an enormous difference when, for when potential therapies can reach the patients who need them. 16 years ago, Californians approved a proposition that provided $3 billion for stem cell research for labs such as Mark's in California. And in November 2020, Californians voted to approve Proposition 14 to invest another $5 billion in stem cell research and regenerative therapies in California. This funding will keep California as the world center for stem cell and regeneration research. Thank you very much for your opportunity to speak today about spinal cord injury. Thank you very much, Mr. Yant. That was very informative. And so now we move to the question and answer part of our program. And we do have a number of questions up here. Let me start uh, with the first one. This is to Dr. Tosinski. Uh, how does your approach differ from the Geron Asterius trial that started several years ago? Uh, that's a great question. How does this differ from the Asterius approach? So we're doing stem cell therapy different than anybody else actually who's working with stem cell therapy. So we aim to splice the circuit. We aim to put ourselves right here in the injury site. So, so as I've said, host axons grow in, form connections. The stem cell axons grow out, form connections, and we splice the circuit. Geron uh, did not put the cells in the injury site. They were not targeting regeneration per se. They put their cells here and here and here and here. So they were targeting not the injured part of the spinal cord, but the spared part of the spinal cord, trying not to regrow new wires, but to re-insulate the axons that were spared in order to make the residual population function better. So that's a rational approach. It's an approach that was spearheaded by two stem cell scientists at UC Irvine. Uh, one was Hans Kierstedt and the other was Eileen Anderson working separately. And uh, that approach went into clinical trials with Geron and with another company called Stem Cells Incorporated. Um, I'm a neurologist. And as a neurologist, I look at the fact that the amount of the sparing on either side, this isn't drawn to scale. There's rather little sparing in most people. And, and to me, conceptually, this more than 90% of the axons that are cut are a more compelling target to try and elicit function from than the small residual spared population by remyelinating them. So that's why we're taking this approach. This approach has not been taken in previous human clinical stem cell trials. And so ours is, to my knowledge, will be the first to come to human clinical trials if we get there using this approach. Thank you very much, Mark. Um, our next question is for... Mr. Yant, and uh, the question is, uh, what would you say has been your personal biggest challenge uh, in dealing with uh, the aftermath of a spinal cord injury for this uh, many years? Oh, boy. Uh, let's see. Well, you know, um, some of the things that Mark had in his slides really make sense. Um, at, you know, from the time of injury, the, there's some research that shows that from the time of injury to 
about 18 months after the injury is, a, is an adjustment period where at the end of that 18 months um, that people will most likely return to the same psychological point of uh, their existence that they had before the injury. So the answer to the question is the most difficult part was clearly the first several months after the injury. And um, uh, I'm not alone in people that had uh, thoughts of suicide and um, just to go instantly from a healthy uh, 30-year-old person to um, someone who um, is completely dependent upon others to take care of you. It was difficult, not only physically, but psychologically. So that, that adjustment period, um, when I first got injured, that was the most difficult time uh, for, for me in terms of my spinal cord injury. Great. Thank you very much. That's, that's very informative. Uh, let's see. Next question for Dr. Tosinski. Um, is there degeneration downstream of the injury? And if so, how does your approach cope with that? Yeah, so there is degeneration downstream of the injury. Let me just try to define what that means or what that is. So when you uh, cut the spinal cord, the tissue below it can go away. Some of it just gets reabsorbed by the body. Those wires, those axons that have been disconnected from their cell above, they get reabsorbed by the body. Um, and the and the white matter that they're traveling in the spinal cord has inflammatory cells and there's debris being removed. And in trying to promote regeneration of the host axon, that's been one of the greatest obstacles. When the stem cell axon encounters that degenerating environment, you know, for reasons we don't completely understand, we partially understand, but not completely, they like that environment. They will grow through that degenerating white matter. We actually published part of the reason that they do in a journal called Science Translational Medicine in 2019. They find that those pieces of degenerating myelin actually stimulate their growth. And that's through a receptor called NEGR1 <laughs> for anyone who wants to rush to Google and understand what that is. But they, so yes, the tissue degenerates, but that actually doesn't stop the stem cell axons. It actually encourages them. Nature is kind of doing us a favor with this biology. You know, it's allowing these cells to extend axons in ways that the injured adult won't. And the inhibitory condi conditions that block adult growth actually stimulate these axons to grow. Otherwise, you wouldn't see hundreds of thousands of axons growing for these kinds of distances. So, so in a follow-up to that then, uh, same questioner here. How do you imagine that these new axons find the correct targets? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. And this gift of stem cell biology keeps giving in that respect. <laughs> we were, so I, one of the reasons I was a little skeptical to get into stem cell research 10 years ago when Dr. Liu wanted to is that I said that to myself. I said, from everything I know about neural development, there's no way they're going to find the right targets. Again, normal embryonic development of the nervous system is this exquisite orchestration of genetic and molecular events that guide an axon to the right location. How could you ever hope that these, these many axons coming out would find the right target? Well, 
the gift that keeps on giving is guiding them to the right target. Again, it's just astonishing biology. So one would think that in the adult nervous system, long after it has ended development, the guidance cues that direct an axon to the right place would be gone, but they're not. They're still there. They're re-expressed after the injury. And those guidance cues generally allow the injured circuits to find the right place to reconnect with. And, um, and we've published that in a couple of papers that appeared in a journal called Nature Communication and another one I, I, I don't remember the name of right now. But again, if one wants to see that actual literature, it's available as a published article. Great. Thank you. Just amazing. Uh, next one for Mr. Yant. So for people who want to help raise money for spinal cord research, uh, what, what would you say is the best way to get involved and to help out? There are a couple of ways. Um, one way that uh, is uh, more work, but um, perhaps more successful would be to um, put a put on an event of some sort. Um, uh, and it, I would suggest that um, if you uh, want to support Mark's lab, um, that would be fine. You could have a have a, a a jogathon or some kind of a small fundraiser that would help raise money for Mark's event. There are also national groups that um, are involved in spinal cord injury research, the um, Christopher and Dana Reed Foundation, the Miami Project. If people feel more comfortable in raising money under the umbrella of one of those organizations, um, uh, you could go under that route also. Um, another, another way is if, um, you know, somebody that has a lot of resources, um, especially someone that has spinal cord injury in their family. And the third thing in that, uh, line is, uh, an interest in spinal cord injury research. Personally, I've raised, uh, a bulk of my money, the money that I've raised that way. So someone that has a lot of resources, an injury in their family, and someone that has an interest in the research, um, that is a prime candidate for um, donating to research. And I was really almost like a dog with a bone when I got a donor like that because um, uh, people like that can really make a big difference in the field uh, to get uh, basic science research funding going. Great. Thank you. Very helpful. And I encourage all of our audience to get involved and to uh, work with scientists and patients to raise money for this sort of research and other types of medical research that aim to help with these sorts of injuries and disorders. Uh, next question, uh, Dr. Tosinski, um, does the age of the spinal cord have an effect on how well the therapy works? And, and I think that the intent of the question is not acute versus chronic, but do the chronic injuries get harder and harder to rescue as time goes on? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we are working on chronic spinal cord injury. Um, we have delayed implanting our stem cells for as long as one year after injury. And most recently we have uh, delayed implantation by two years after injury in both rats and in uh, non-human primates. Generally what we find 
is that the, first of all, uh, there is a reduction in responsiveness to the stem cell implant, but it's a partial reduction. It's about a 50% reduction in the magnitude of the effect that we see. So the chronically injured spinal cord can still respond. Um, and uh, we're, we, we haven't done as many chronic experiments, so we don't have as much data on those. But generally, as a first pass, I would say that about what I said is accurate. There's, there's still a regenerative response. It's about half as potent as what I've shown you. And, and it is very important to do that kind of work. I mean, I agree with you, Bob. You know, the vast majority of people living with spinal cord injury are in chronic stages of injury. It's a more difficult target therapeutically. Um, both should be addressed. And, and you're also right that experiments in chronic injury are much more expensive because we have to keep the animals around longer. And that's a that's just a more expensive endeavor. Yes, oh boy, that is true. Um, thank you, Dr. Tzinski. Uh, next one for Mr. Yant. Um, I'm, I'm sure you, you know that as scientists, uh, we often are accused of, on the one hand, not being optimistic enough about how well our research is going to help patients. And on the other hand, we're accused of hyping our research too much and over-promising. So do you have thoughts about how, how the community can best balance between those? And of course, that affects patient advocates as well. Uh, same deal. Sometimes we can be too conservative as patient advocates and sometimes uh, too optimistic, perhaps. How have you threaded that needle? That is a very, that's an excellent question. And um, uh, there's a friend that Mark Tuzinski knows of mine, Mark, uh, rather his name is Sam Maddox, a journalist uh, who's covered this field for uh, 30 years. And he and I were kind of going through that a couple of months ago and um, boy, you know, I think it takes you have in order in terms of trying to find out what is really good research. I think it involves a number of different touch points you have to get. So I, I would you know uh, encourage people that are trying to find out whether or not let's say research is being hyped or not is to uh, uh, certainly talk to other scientists about it. But as many uh, if you can find out from other organizations that funds spinal cord injury research, there might be someone there. Um, and then um, if you can, as best you can, educate yourself in the process of uh, what it takes to happen in spinal cord injury. That's uh, what I've done over the last uh, 30 years. Um, I, I, I just wanna say that, um, you know, every time um, I talk to Mark Tuzinski, and again today, I was so looking forward to seeing his talk, um, I just, it really just raises my spirits. I, it's like, you know, you see the progress that he's made and uh, I know the dedication and um, the extremely long hours every day that he's put into this. So um, when you get to know a researcher uh, closely, I think that helps too also to, uh, um, to find out uh, more about what's going on and really if you can dig into the science as much as possible to educate yourself. Uh, next question to Dr. Tosinski. Um, this is an interesting one. Uh, when you implant neuronal stem cells into the lesion cavity, do the neuronal stem cells completely differentiate? Do any of them remain as stem cells? And uh, if they do, is that a bad thing or a good thing? 
Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we do know what the fate of the cells is. Um, when we implant these neural stem cells, about 80% of the human cells we implant become neurons and about 20% become the support cells consisting of astrocytes and the myelinating cells, the insulating cells called oligodendrocytes. And of those that become neurons, about um, three quarters of them are, are excitatory and about one quarter are inhibitory. And that's again about the normal distribution of cells in the spinal cord. You know, and that, that leads, and well, and let me just add that of those that become the neurons, they pretty much differentiate into the right proportion of cells that normally populate the spinal cord. So we're getting the full complement of normal spinal cord cells. Um, the, the normal spinal cord has a, a smaller proportion of neurons than astrocytes, than the supporting cells, but otherwise this pretty much resembles the normal spinal cord. And, and what that tells you is that the cells are intrinsically programmed to, to a certain fate. And what we're doing, what we're doing to them, putting them in an injury cavity, even in a different species, isn't altering their fundamental genetic program to mature into the kinds of cells they normally mature into. And that's something that we call a cell intrinsic property. You know, the, so the fate is intrinsic to the types of cells that we are implanting. So actually, they don't randomly become any cell type. They have this pattern, what's called pattern differentiation that's maintained per their normal identity as stem cells. And do any continue to be stem cells? So we've done studies to look at that too. We've done a lot of work with these cells to understand them as best as we can. And we find that if we look at them over uh, six months, 12 months, 18 months, the, the number of cells are dividing and remaining as stem cells uh, gradually dampens down until they're undetectable as dividing at all after a year and a half in about half the animals. And in the other half, it's a very low percentage, about 0.5% of the cells are still dividing. Fantastic. Uh, next one to Mr. Yant, I think. Um, there's a lot of interest in STEM education uh, in the K through 12 uh, realm. Uh, do you have any experience with that? And do you think that uh, we're doing enough to encourage young scientists in training, uh, you might say, uh, to enter this uh, field? Well, this is not really my area of expertise. So I'm going to have to go on uh, what I read in Science Magazine or uh, other places, um, I think over the, over certainly over the last decade, there has been, I mean, just the development of the word STEM and how that has uh, tended to uh, rather permeate through our population a bit. Uh, certainly there's a, there is a higher interest uh, and, um, on science and technology um, and mathematics than there was in the past. And, um, you know, yeah, I would love to have more uh, brilliant uh, people going into um, uh, science and technology. I mean, nothing against Wall Street, but um, I see just really, really bright kids that, um, you know, are passing by a career in science to make uh, larger incomes in uh, areas of finance or real estate or wherever else it is. So, um, are we doing enough to encourage? Um, probably not. You know, maybe 
maybe we need to figure out ways to make science more attractive to the brightest, uh, the best and the brightest, so that they will not think about other careers that make more money. Um, you know, scientists, a lot of them are interested in doing science because they are really interested in the answers They're of like getting at something fundamental. Like I think about the workers in Mark, the lab workers in Mark's lab who are the first ones to look through the microscope to see something that no one else in history has ever seen before. Now, some people live for that. You know, that would be a really a highlight of a career, but other people are motivated by, uh, making more money. And um, unfortunately, we have to reconcile that. Yes. Yeah, so certainly, you know, I'd say the thrill of discovery is one motivator and also the, the, the drive to do something that benefits human welfare uh, drives many of us in this field. And, and those are not mutually exclusive uh, uh, values. They, they, they both are really good. Uh, let's see. Uh, Mark. Uh, question. Uh, so if you do the implants in your experiments in immunodeficient rats, how is that going to work when you get to immunocompetent humans? Well, that's another uh, reason that we went to the monkey model. So we immunosuppressed the monkeys using the same immunosuppression protocol that we would use in humans. And the immunosuppression protocol was the standard protocol for doing human solid organ transplantation like kidney and liver and lung. Um, and when we do that kind of immunosuppression, even the, the xenograft, when you go from one species to another, that's a higher immunological hurdle to try and get over. We can get the grafts to survive long-term. Long, longest we've looked is uh, 18 months and you know, not every graft survives in every monkey, but we've gotten great graft survival out to a year and a half and now longer in monkeys using these immunosuppression protocols. So we have not ignored that, that we have done immunosuppression studies both in rats and in monkeys, and, and we can get the paradigms to work. Can I ask Mark a question? Yeah. Sure, please. Mark, have you ever uh, considered or used um, induced pluripotent stem cells as a way to get around the problem of immunosuppression? Yeah, yeah. So for those who don't know what we're talking about, so induced pluripotent stem cells mean that in theory, you could take a cell from Bob Yant, uh, take a skin biopsy and make his skin cells into neural stem cells. That technology exists. It was discovered more than 10 years ago by a scientist in Japan named uh, Yamanaka, who got the Nobel Prize for that incredible discovery. And now we can make neural stem cells from an adult. Um, and then in theory, you wouldn't have to immunosuppress somebody. So that is absolutely promising technology. The issue is that when you make neural stem cells that way, uh, they're not quite as stable genetically. And uh, we have more difficulty controlling their growth. So that's another area of research that is ongoing. Um, but it's a little bit behind in development compared to taking these established embryonic stem cells that we work with, which, um, you know, there are, there are many people who have made embryonic stem cells. We, we use embryonic stem cells developed at the University of Wisconsin. It's called the H9 line. 
you remember back to the George Bush administration when the stem cell research was banned, a few lines were allowed to persist, and this was one of them. Um, and um, they seem to be a good, stable embryonic stem cell line, and that's what we're moving forward with. But uh, the one of the future improvements to this technology is exactly that, Bob. Um, at, and maybe this is a chance to talk about improvements to technology because I saw there was another question saying, well, what if, you know, you're not getting complete recovery. What about filling that in? And um, we have a lot of thoughts about that and we're pursuing a lot of directions about that. So could we get even more recovery if there was more host axon regeneration into the graft? And we are pursuing means of doing that as, as a way of forming more connections and hopefully improving functional outcomes. And that's by changing the intrinsic growth state of the injured adult cell up here in the brain that regenerates into the graft. Another approach we're taking is combining intensive rehabilitation with uh, the graft so that perhaps these connections that are being functionally used will be stabilized because they're being functionally used more and that they'll be encouraged to develop and form. So, so the combination of Intensive rehabilitation is a potential avenue. So is electrical stimulation. So one of the areas being tried in humans with spinal cord injuries now are to implant electrodes over the spine and do electrical stimulation to lower the threshold for the activation of those spared axons. Well, we found when working with the stem cells that, that we can also lower their threshold to fire and make a more effective relay. So we're pursuing studies to combine electrical stimulation or pharmacological drug stimulation with the neural stem cells to make them more effective electrical relays. And there are other things. So, you know, we do want to try and fill in that gap and go from about the 60, well, from about 30 to 40% recovery, build it as much as we can. And these are all future research directions and they take people and they take money and there's only so much you can do, but we do the best with what we have. Well, on the topic of money, um, uh, Mark, again, uh, can you estimate the time and cost of a phase one trial for your approach and for chronic injury? Yeah, so, so a phase one trial refers to the first time you bring something into humans to do a, a clinical trial. And these are typically done as the first study just to make sure, first of all, that what you're doing is safe. And then secondly, if you're lucky, you get some sense of whether you're actually doing any good. Usually you wait for a so-called phase two trial where you compare your therapy with a placebo control and see if the, and you don't know who's getting what, you're so-called blinded to that to see whether it's truly effective. In phase one, you're primarily focused on safety, but you know you hope you can do some good and see it. Um, so that phase one study um, for this kind of technology, you know, you have to realize the cost to us in a phase one trial is different than the cost of actually making a product that gets approved by the FDA and given to people at the end of the day. Those are very different sets of costs. The cost for us to do that phase one clinical trial would likely be on the order of about, I would say $200,000 per patient. So that would include, you know, making the cells um, and doing the surgery. 
so the, the surgery is not trivial surgery. So a surgeon has to go in, open up the injury site again, and introduce the cells. And again, that's exactly what we're doing now in non-human primates. And we're working with a neurosurgeon at UCSD named um, Joe Chiachi, um, who has done some of the Geron trials and the Asterius trials. So he's somewhat experienced in this, using the technology in a different way. And now he's working with us on our monkeys. So that we have a clinician there ready to say, okay, I know how to do this. I've done it in monkeys. Now I'm going to bring it to people. But anyway, the, you know, we estimate the cost at 200 to 250,000 per patient. And how many patients do you anticipate in a full-fledged phase one? Yeah, so we've already designed our phase one trial. We really are trying to move this forward and would probably have about 20 patients. We would start patients who have a thoracic level injury, make sure it's safe there. And then if it is, we'd probably move up to a cervical level of injury because, you know, the, you know, the axons will grow over about this distance. And um, if you have an injury in the middle of your neck, that will get you below the level of your injury to things like the hand circuitry. Or if you have a high injury that affects your breathing, that will get you down into the breathing circuits to maybe restore breathing. So to us, actually, a cervical level injury is the most compelling target. But what could also be compelling is a low thoracic injury where if there's reconnection to the lumbar spinal cord for walking, then you could see an improvement in walking. So a minimum of $5 million for a phase one. Yeah. The price, the price going up as you get into phase two and phase three. Yeah, well. that's right. That's right. Yeah, that's, that's reality. Yeah, it ain't um, cheap. It ain't cheap. <laughs> but, you know, compared to, a, you know, a F-15 or an aircraft carrier or other things that we value in our nation, uh, we should probably value medical research in the same way. Uh, question for Mr. Yant. Um, there's a lot of interest in physical therapy and rehab work. Uh, has that benefited you and has that helped you recover any function over time? So I'm going to be honest and say that I haven't done much physical therapy. <laughs> okay. um, I should be doing physical therapy. Uh, what I do every day is to um, uh, go through a, a range of motion where I uh, move all my limbs, uh, particularly lower limbs every day. And the, the main reason for doing that is so that uh, contractures don't form. Um, there is an industry, a pretty healthy industry, in California of, of private clinics that, um, again, sometimes uh, advertise, uh, make promises that they're not able to completely uh, fulfill. And those promises are, uh, you know, come in here, we'll give you... Uh, physical therapy, and, uh, you know, maybe you walk out again. And uh, the therapy can be quite expensive, uh, several hundred dollars a day. Um, so um, that I'll leave that as it is. There is no doubt, absolutely no doubt, that physical therapy is going to be part of the ultimate cure or treatment for spinal cord injury. It just... It just absolutely has to be that um, we give p patients physical therapy after these treatments. And there's some, even some uh, concern on the part of uh, a well-known researcher, Reggie Edgerton, who is um, kind of a leader in this field, um, that maybe some of the treatments that have been tried in spinal cord injury for a recovery of function in the past 
that haven't had physical therapy as a component of the physical therapy. Maybe we missed something there. We don't know. But um, so the bottom line is that physical therapy is going to be crucial for any therapy that is uh, tried in terms of uh, repairing or regenerating nerves and spinal cord. Okay, I really want to thank uh, Mr. Robert Yant, Dr. Mark Tosinski. Wonderful presentations, great Q and A uh, responses. We owe you a debt of gratitude for taking your time today to share your ideas and uh, wonderful scientific progress and personal progress. And with that, I'm going to close today's edition of A Closer Look at Spinal Cord Injury. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.